Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. Around 10 years old, my 45-year-old SA husband started sexualizing his mother and his sister, who was five years older than him. His mother would swim topless and he watched his sister shower. His mother has a sibling on sibling and parent incest porn addiction that we stumbled upon a few years ago. His sister used her sexuality to trap and control men since she started dating, even as far as group encounters with strangers. She's never had an intimate, healthy relationship. We do not know his father's sexual behavior and he has since passed, but he was a high functioning alcoholic. My husband does not have any memory of sexual abuse. Is this abnormal, even in a sex addiction world, for the entire family to be this sexually maladaptive or hereditary issue? Well, um, that's a look. You just have to stop. That's a look right now. So (laughs) I I don't know what kind of look it is, but I'm just getting chilly here, getting cool at night. Um, So. I guess what I, you know, the first thought I have is this, this is a, a, a question all about abuse. Like there's abuse all over this question. You don't have to have had physical contact to have had abuse. We have a, a name for that. We call it covert incest. So when mom is swimming around naked or telling you about her sexual life or, you know, dad is a mess and mom's turning to you or, you know, sister has, I mean, there's just this story is filtered and veined with abuse and sexual abuse. And clearly there there is some history of sexual abuse, which probably goes back generations from what I'm seeing, but it's getting, you know, we talk about Tammy and I, how important it is to come to treatment because this is generational and absolutely without question, what happens when you're growing up and doesn't get talked about, you know, ends up in the next generation. And I got to tell you, almost every man I work with has a sad story about his kid, not harming them physically or anything like that, but just realizing they, because of what they grew up, they were grew up with, they were absent or they were um, sexualizing the situation they were in or whatever. So um, I don't think the question, is it abnormal for the entire family this to be this maladaptive? Um, Certainly sexual abuse hits hits everyone in the family, and it depends on to what degree this is going on. But I got to tell you, even if there wasn't hands-on contact, you know, I, I, you know, it isn't just your husband who saw mom swim around naked or saw the alcoholic dad or, you know, no wonder why your sister ended up making the decision she made. So what I see here is one of those on some level, it doesn't matter because the shadow of what happened is so stark that you can almost look back and say, oh, yeah, well, that's why it has that outline. Because so, no, I don't think it's abnormal. I just think it's tragic. I think it's tragic. And I hope that everyone, or at least those who are aware, are trying to work on this and make sure one of the greatest and most important things to me in my work is just tell the men that I work with, please don't pass this on. And I think that's the most important piece to me and behaviors and activities that can go on with a 45-year-old dad and how he's perceived and how the two of you get along and all that stuff is going to play out on somewhat level emotionally with kids. And so um, I would not want to pass this on. Anyways, can you Tammy? speak? 
yeah, no, I want you to, before you turn it over, I want you to speak to the uh, hereditary issue because what I hear you talking about is you can stop this here. So it's not like a biological right. hereditary. It's all of those factors that are woven into generationally that is, you know, at play here probably, but I don't want to assume that. I can't, so. I can't wait till you hear Dr. Higgins. Uh, I know podcast. I want to hear it. I look we today did a and podcast. it's not on yet. I, was fortunate enough to do a podcast with really one of the leaders in the bio psychological piece of addiction where she really looks at brain markers and DNA and all of that kind of stuff. And I won't, I won't go into great detail because it'll take too long. But if you listen to sex, love and addiction, I think that's coming out at least early next week, the, if not before. Yeah. I hope this Her. week I'm watching for it. So right. I'll, I'll post. Yeah. And the reason I bring this up is because part of the thing we talked about on the podcast was a long discussion about hereditary factors related to addiction and other emotional disorders uh, as in addition to nature. And basically, without getting too complex, let me just say this. And I mean complex for me. I get confused. But the reality is, is that um, almost everyone that becomes an addict has some genetic markers that indicate the potential for that. So... Um, and if you consider, I consider addiction to be a brain, emotional illness problem, mental illness, but the same as depression or whatever. So we all carry, uh, if you're depressed, for example, you carry gene markers for depression. However, and I don't mean to be complex, there's something called the epigenetics, which means what physical, nurture, biological experiences have gone on in, adult, in childhood that may have caused, caused this to happen or not. In other words, you can turn the gene on or off. So I might have the gene for depression, but if I have a really stable, really nurturing early environment where I'm not anxious or fearful, and you know, it may be that I never get depressed because that gene doesn't get literally expressed. It just doesn't open up and begin to set down a, a trail of chemical changes that lead me to depression. But in my case, I grew up, you know, with a very crazy, crazy family where there was uh, some genetic markers for mental illness. And, you know, here I am, I'm bipolar and I'm an addict. So, you know, it's both. There, is, there are genetic markers for mental illness of every kind, addiction, depression, anxiety, all that stuff. But whether that expresses itself in the next generation or at any point has to do with the, the nurture part, the stability, the, you know, the stressors, what a child has been through, um, or even an adult. You know, I've seen people who went through tremendous stress at 30 and for the first time they became depressed. And that's because the kinds of neurochemistry and what they were going through at that time in their life was so stressful that that gene got turned on. Um, and I don't mean turned on by like sexually, I mean, it begins to produce change. So Tammy, you're right. It's both is the right answer. And I wanted to touch on the, because this was um, specifically asking about sexually maladaptive and I'm like, it, it, it could be, but, you know, eating disorders, you mentioned alcoholism right. before, right. It's all the, you know, the right. father. So, so however, whatever maladaptive coping mechanism, you know, right. happens or combination, you know, it really is, you know, trying to figure out how I can manage in a very unsafe world. So, so sexually is a, you know, how apparently it has played out. Um, uh, with multiple members, but it, but it, honestly, it, you know, it, it could be that and, you know, other things too, you know. Right, the vulnerability is not necessarily to that specific thing. So it's a vulnerability, for example, to addiction. 
So, but what form that takes may have to do with more than nurture piece. Like I, I experienced various forms of incest. So it makes sense to me that that would have expressed itself in that way. Uh, someone else or another one of your kids might have ended up with alcoholism because they had a different, by the way, I am, uh, I just put in the chat, Tammy, if anyone's interested in epigenetics, which I think is fascinating, I put up the, uh, the CDC explanation and it's re fairly reasonable, but what it talks about is the intersection of biological traits and nur nurture and how they fit together. It's a really good article. You might like it, Tim. I, I will absolutely pull that. Okay. So the next question is, can you, can y'all, so somebody's from the South, can y'all talk about intermittent reward and how that can cause or enhance relationship addiction in the betrayed partner? In the so betrayed me, partner. Interesting. Yeah, help me. Okay. I think I understand what this person's saying. I think what they're saying, and I could be wrong, is how does it drive me forward to continue to want to stay in the relationship? How does it drive me forward to be so focused on my partner? What is it about the how we interact and how I'm rewarded by the relationship that keeps me addicted to this relationship? That's what I think it means. Does that make sense? Or do you it have It does, but like I don't like I struggle with being addicted to the relationship. I you know right. Um, yeah, well, I like I think uh, your message of yeah your message of prodependence is I love somebody who's broken, but you know that doesn't mean I'm addicted or pathologized by being you know in that I still see the good in the relationship. So I'm right, what there am are I two missing? Parts, two parts okay. to this, and maybe you're tying it together in some ways. So for so intermittent, when we study psychology, one of the basic things we learn is what motivates behavior. What makes someone do something and never do it again, do it every time or never do it? And some of the most basic pieces are kind of go like this. If you were playing uh, the, the what do you call it? If you were playing a machine in Vegas I, and you wanted okay, to. A right, slot machine. You. you don't even thank have you. to do that I don't anymore. It's just push them, a button. But so if you were, I don't either. If you were playing one of those things in Vegas and it paid off every single time, you'd get bored. It's not that interesting. I know what the outcome's going to be. If you played um, the slot machine and you never got paid, you'd probably give up because what's the point of throwing all this money in this thing? But what they know, in, and they actually have algorithms set up for how many times and whatever, if you play and you win occasionally, you're much more likely to chase that and have that idea of, oh, maybe next time, maybe next time, maybe next time, very addictive in that way. And so you play and play with the hope that it will happen again, the good thing, because it's already happened. So it's the same in relationships. You know, we love someone, we have some really good times, things are great. And then, you know, things get really bad or they're bad for a long time. But when there's a good moment, when there is a happy experience, when there's a holiday or, or with a lot of betrayed partners, I love you and I hate you, you know? So I look over and I have those loving feelings and we have a little glance because we've had this history. And all of a sudden I feel like, oh, okay, that's what we've had. That's what I've been looking for. And then it goes away. So I don't think that's addiction. I don't think anyone can be addicted to a person, but I think that you can gain this momentum of hope that really is relying on those good moments rather than what you're seeing in front of you. As Tammy says, you know, I don't believe that people are addicted to people. I think people love people and they get really committed to those people and they will, you know, as I've said many times before, under pro-dependence, um, I would never leave a partner or, and I would give up my entire self to them if they had cancer. And so why would I leave them or distance myself or go away because they have an addiction as painful as it might be as long as, so in either case, I don't think that you're addicted to 
the person because they have cancer because you're obsessed about it. I don't think you're addicted to the person who's an addict because you're obsessed about that. I think we're obsessed with, if you will, the idea that it's going to get better. And if I just do this or just do that, or I remember last month when it was great. So we live on hope, I guess, and the moments that are good. The good news about this is I often say that to the addicts that the partners who stay with us, if we're not overly abusive and we're working on it, you guys kind of carry the image of who we might be the hope of who we could become because you've experienced that a few times or, you know, I think you stay for the hope that the love you've had will continue. So when you call yourself a relationship addict, I say that you are deeply love someone and that you're really seeing the best in the times you've had. And you're kind of chasing the idea that it's going to get better because you've had good times and, you know, we'll chase that forever, especially if we feel like there's something we can do like if only I did this, it would change or that. And that even pulls us in further. Um, so um, that's that's the explanation. Tammy, unless you have more, I think we should keep zipping through questions and we'll never get uh, No, I, that was really helpful. And thanks for clarifying. Okay, the next sure. one is I have some boundaries set, but it may not be enough. Can you mention a few, please, that are most common? This is, I'm sure, from a partner. So Right. So let me first say, as, as Tammy and I often say, the boundaries are for you. They're not for your partner. So if you hope, just may not be quite what the intervention show shows, but if you are trying to change your behavior in the hope, set a boundary, like you can't come home, for example, in the hope that they will change their behavior, that's not a good reason to have a boundary because they may change it, they may not. However, if you don't feel safe with that person in the house, then that is a boundary to set. In other words, it is about you're keeping yourself safe. So boundaries to me are what do you what do you feel uncomfortable with? You know, what do you feel, you know, when you're lied to? Is that a boundary? If you lie to me, you know, whatever it is. If you come into my bedroom and I don't want you in the room, I don't want you here without knocking. I just said it sounds simple. I don't want you to come home late. It's not okay with me. And if you do, I want you to call me. And um, I don't want to go to your parents' house for the holidays since everyone in the family knows what you've been doing. Those are boundaries. So uh, um, Tammy, as far as the most common, and I'm going to push us to zip through, but can you throw a few out there? Because you talked to so many spouses about that. Well, you've talked specifically about domestic violence on either side is never okay. That's like right. just never okay. I often use four areas, physical, what do I need for my physical person to for safety? Um, emotional, financial and spiritual. I look at those four areas and I think about how do I need to take care of myself and value myself. And I, you know, then I can lay out, these are the things that I need to feel safe. And then I can ask my partner, you know, this is what I'm doing for me. And I want you to honor those boundaries. And if that person is not able to, then there, it may cause you to step away or him have to sleep in the other room or whatever it is. So the consequences are not punitive because you did this or you are bad or whatever. It's like, right. I value me. I'm doing this for my safety across those four areas. And, and I'm setting th those things in place. So we've done, so they're on our, um, Debbie McRae has, there's a bunch of them, but Debbie McRae did some really good, um, webinars on, that it were previously recorded on our website, yep, um, that talked specifically about that. And, and But the challenge is that boundaries are about you. So what do you need? So it isn't, it isn't just like, these are the three things that you need to put on your list. Yeah, I mean, what do you need? So, okay. Well, and I just really, really quick, uh, mm -hmm. um, a, great, a great example. 
My spouse looks at porn all the time, closed in their office upstairs in the house. My boundary might be, I want the door open. When I walk by that office, I don't want to think what you're doing there. I want to make sure when you're working, it'll just make me feel more safe. Perfect example of a boundary. The question is, though, what if they break up? I think that's something you always have to think about. Not to threaten, like, if you do this, then at all. But inside of you, what do I do if they don't respect this? Yes. I want to get through all of them tonight. Okay. All right, the next one. The last discovery was almost two years ago, and my PA has been doing good in recovery since then. The last time I saw, I saw the betrayed partner, a CSAT was in August, and she recommended I do the workbook called Intimate Treason, but I'm having a very difficult time even opening the book. What is the purpose of constantly writing the betrayal stuff down? I feel angry just thinking about it. Well, I think you answered your own question there with the last sentence. Um, I've been doing this for a while. I've certainly been uh, betrayed in my life. Um, if I sat down, if I was thinking about setting down and writing about that, I, I would feel bad. I would feel like I want to learn something from it, but I wouldn't be angry. And so the fact that your anger comes up and that you're resistant to it tells me that it's painful. Did you? I don't know if you know this, but anger is a defense. Defense is something oh, you I put up. This to hide or pretend to yourself or others. So people get angry to push someone away, someone away because always what's under anger is sadness. And we don't want to be vulnerable when we're sad. It's much easier to get angry. This psychological fact, easier to get angry at you than, or safer than I feel so sad and I'm angry and I'm hurt. And so to me, if the anger's coming up when you're even thinking about it, then my guess is that there's sadness and hurt and other things lying under there that you may not may be kind of avoiding. So what is it we say in recovery, Tammy? Do, uh, well, put your body in the chair and the rest will follow. Um, there's a couple of things that, that I think you could say about that. Um, y- y- feelings aren't facts. Just because you feel bad about it doesn't mean it's a bad idea. So yeah, I mean, by the way, our CSETs are well-trained, the ones that are good. So we don't make idle recommendations. If your CSET said, I think you should do this, not a bad idea, but I would do it when you're involved with SLIA or going to one of our support groups or still seeing that therapist. Well, well, this do it this is the betrayed partner, though. Right. Yeah, support but, groups, therapist. Yeah. I wouldn't do this alone. Write this stuff Correct. down without support. Right. That's all I'm saying. Right. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. But not SLIA because that would be for the addict. But, but oh, I'm sorry. I yeah, meant no, no, that's okay. That was the only clarification. Right. Yeah. No, but I, you know, and I'm going like, uh, uh, you know what? If you're angry thinking about it, that anger is inside you. And, you know, like that is absolutely, um, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk wrote, the body keeps score. And I just keep thinking about that toxic anger that is, if I'm going to use the word festering inside of you and getting it out on a piece of paper. You know, we did a, um, a webinar with about journaling and there is research about how healthy and helpful and healing journaling is. So that would be why to write it because then it's and you're on your paper and not in your body. Okay. Um, I also, one more thing, because we're saying, you know, anger is a stage of grief. And, you know, there are other stages that take place. Anger is one of the stages because the next one is sadness, depression. So again, I think, Absolutely, there's grief going on here. And who wants to sit around and grieve? But you'll clean your soul, um, as yeah. Tammy said, if you do that. And your life will go better. 
Yeah. Um, Grief is a process and it's not linear. You don't go, I'm done with anger and I'm this. It's like it's right. back and forth, but it gets less. It's like you're processing through that. So, okay. My sex, love and porn addict husband and I agreed after discovery seven months ago that he would put masturbation in his inner circle. Today, we looked at his circles and it says compulsive masturbation. I asked him if he considered different masturbation um, and compulsive masturbation. And he said, yes. So I asked him to put masturbation in his inner circle, like we had originally said. He said, well, he doesn't think masturbation is maladaptive coping mechanism. So now I see his loophole. Am I wrong to ask him to put it in his inner circle? Well, everything I'm totally on. I'm totally with you to the last sentence. Because it's, I, I think that he's full of crap. And I think that, you know, to me, this is exactly like saying, okay, I'm not going to drink whiskey, but I'm just going to have a glass of wine or half a bottle, but I'll do when people are around. I won't drink. In other words, he's setting up some kind of structure to give him permission to keep doing what he's doing. And he has a really good excuse. But the, so to me, this is a, what does his 12-step sponsor say? What does the group that he's in say? What does he say with his therapist? I mean, these are, he needs to be confronted. And thus to the last part of your question, you're not, you're not wrong to want it in his inner circle, but it is not your job to ask him. You can say, I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> Boundaries. I don't want to be around you. I don't want you coming home. I don't want you in my bed. Unless he is willing to look at it and talk to someone about it and come back to you and say, based on your boundary and your request, this is what I did. Um, or you can just say, as long as you're still doing whatever the F you want, you're not working on it. And I don't want to talk about your working on it because I don't believe you. Um, and you can tell him, Dr. Rob said that the way masturbation goes with our clients in this way is simple. We take it out in the beginning for sure. And most often it's tied to porn. So within maybe three to six months, somewhere in there, it may be that that person can return to masturbation, but never with the porn. So some of us, those we're not really that aroused unless those images are right in front of us. And so if they're not recent, and it's been six months, so I was looking at porn or whatever, some of us can masturbate. Um, some of us keep those images in our head because we're very visual. And so we can't because we're constantly picturing that last experience, that last person. Now you would say, how do I look inside some of my partner's head and know this? It's not your job. You know, what I did was I went to my sponsor who I had a very important relationship, but I said, I'm thinking about masturbation. What do you think? And he said, well, it's been this long. Why don't you call me before, do what you need to do and do it after, and then reach me in the next few days and let's see how it goes. <coughs> excuse me, does it contribute to the problem? <clears throat> Sorry, that was a peanut, um, little piece. Um, so I don't think it's your job to change the behavior. I think it's your job to take care of you and say, I don't feel comfortable with this. Um, if you asked me to put something in my inner circle, I would resent you. Um, and I don't think that I would respect the fact that I put it in there. I think I need to hear it from the other people that I'm involved with. But if he doesn't put it in there, and you don't feel comfortable, and I wouldn't, um, then I think you need to set some boundaries. Like, as long as that's that way, I'm not doing this, or I'm not doing that, because I don't feel safe. Yeah, and, and you, I, want I wanted, yeah, the only thing I wanted to chime in with was, how it, how is he going to decide what is compulsive and what is not? Like, that is such a, right. you know, to me, I was, that was a laughable moment in a not- funny you know situation right. because it's like like you said with the whiskey and the beer and what i mean it's like well 
today I'm going to masturbate, but it's not going to be compulsive because I decided it's not compulsive is really the only thing I decided. Yes. So, okay. And what I'm talking about is I've been working with someone for months and months and months, and I'm telling my spouse and I'm telling my sponsor and everyone's, you know, it's, it's a completely open discussed issue. And by the way, if you, my partner said, I don't feel comfortable with that. And let me say one more thing about masturbation. If I want to masturbate, um, and it wasn't on my program, the only way that I could see it being healthy is if I sat there in my partner's arms. And, you know, you don't have to sex with me to hold me and I can masturbate. That's fine, you know, but disconnected on my own, not such a great idea, especially in the beginning. It's really early, seven months. Okay. And and I don't hear oh. he's going to 12-step and he's doing all of these great things, seeing his, you know, the therapist doing our online work groups, et cetera. So, okay. Yeah, he should go to the porn work group. He doesn't yeah. get it. Yes. By the way, do yes. I have to say something about the work groups? Yes. I worked Please. with another couple today and it really frustrated me. <clears throat> One of the courses that we teach is out of the doghouse. And out of the doghouse is a book and a course about partner empathy. It's about how do I, as a man, it's about men, find a way to help my spouse come to peace with what I've done. And what do I need to do as an addict actions to help my spouse feel safe? What kinds of things do I say when they get angry? Do I defend myself or, you know, all of it's the instruction guide for a man to work on healing, cheating with a woman. The problem is, and this is where it works into the workshops, is that I hear this all the time and I heard it today. Well, I signed up and I took your doghouse lecture. I know, but you're an active sex addict and you didn't take the sex addiction lecture. You didn't take the porn addiction lecture. You took the one that would be the fastest route to figure out how to get peace in your home with your spouse. So I just want to say that, you know, if you have a partner who's taken a course, we appreciate it. The work is good. I think it's good education, but... If they're an active or a new addict and they're taking the course about trying to for, get you to forgive them or look like they have empathy, I think they're just taking it uh, to find a way to manipulate. So, I oh, would, and one other thing about that. There. Well, but that happens a lot. So, but the facilitator talks to them specifically. So that means someone's tuning out the message of like, you know, you may really want to consider the sex addiction 101, you know, part one. They're just ignoring that and going, well, I checked off the box for doing out of the doghouse. So now she should forgive me and we should have great relationships. So. Well, and, and doghouse does speak to, if you're not doing the work, if you're not going to meetings, if you don't have a support system, if you're not, then it, it doesn't matter what you say or do, nothing will ever be healed. Um, so, okay. What do we got? The next one, and you're going to have to help me translate this. I female just found out that my partner male has not only had ONSs. I don't know what that is. Frequently um, over the past year with women, but with know. cross-dressing men, trans women. Meanwhile, he and I have had sex four times in that year. We are working on things now and he has been sober since t- December 24th, but he still can't be intimate sexual with me. Before he used to work in stress and frustration with the state of the house, me not doing enough as an excuse. But now he says it's due to shame. Is that just another excuse? Well, there's two pieces to this. There's what he's aroused by and what he looks at. And then there's her sexual life. So, Tammy, do you want to, could you mind breaking those down? Because I think there's two questions. I know it's hard to figure out. Um, Maybe someone in the chat. Bottom line, he's been acting out. And, right. and found out so so yes it's but it was cheating and regardless right. of whether it was cross-dressing men trans women or right you know Whatever. female yeah and i there was I cheating to change a word i'm sorry tammy Please. i want to change a word in here which is he still can't be no he doesn't choose 
to be intimate or sexual with you. Um, can't is, you know, I'm on, ba- I'm out of town, <laughs> you know, um, working on it with you. That's a choice. So, um, I understand, and I think it's very true, that sex addicts are fearful of intimacy. We avoid it. I mean, we are intimacy avoidant. As much sex as we have with strangers, it's very hard to have sex with our partners. We run away. That's part of why we act out over here. So I don't know that I want to have sex with my partner. We we have an expression that um, recovering reco- sex for a recovering sex addict doesn't come out of horniness, like, oh, I can't wait to have a piece of that. It comes out of willingness. Because we are afraid and we do avoid. So can we lie with each other and stroke each other's hair? Can we get massage oil? Oops, I'm aroused. I never expected that. Oh, we had great sex. Who knew? But we get intimidated and scared and tend to back away when it's the time to have sex. But there are ways to grow that and evolve that. I don't think part of it is sex is not just going to penetration. You know, there are all kinds of ways to be intimate. And so if he's not able to or interested in sex how about all kinds of physical contact bathing and massages and combing hair and all kinds of things you can do together that isn't the kind of sex that is purely um penetrative um this so, is yeah, less he's, he's than 60 excuses. days though i mean this is less than 60 um, days since he stopped and so what i uh, same thing i'm going to say the same thing i did for the previous one i don't hear any work that he's doing you know, to change, just stopping is abstinence, but that is not changing. That is not working on the shame. That is not, and I'm sorry, I have to go to the, the house isn't clean enough. And so I don't want to have sex with you. I mean, give me a freaking break. You know, what a blame shifting, guilting, you know, thing it's you because you didn't clean the house. He could clean the house. Pardon me. Well, those are just made me mad. But I really appreciate your saying that, Tammy, because I will say to both of you, why is sex so important? Um, you will miss it and long for it, perhaps, but you'll survive, you know, and why is it, why is it, what, how do I say this? One of the spouses I talked to recently said, uh, we're we're going through a similar nightmare. This happened, that happened. And they said, and I said, how are you being sexual? Oh yeah, we're having sex every night. Is that a good idea? And my answer is, what is your motivation? Because a lot of spouses, especially when they find out or in the early stages like this, you are warmer, you feel more sexual. And there's a lot of reasons for that. They're not always good ones. For example, when you examine it, am I being sexual to make sure to reassure myself that I'm still desirable? Am I being sexual so that if I give them enough sex, they won't want to go somewhere else for it? Um, Am I having sex because I want to prove that I'm still attractive? I mean, who knows? Those are not good reasons. Um, And what I say to every one of you all the time is why would you have sex with someone you don't trust? And when it comes down to that, my question would be, do you trust this person to put your needs first and to be safe with and then decide if you want to be sexual? Um, so I, I don't know why it's so important right now to have it unless he's saying something about it, which, yeah, it seems like there's way too much emphasis on sex and not enough about healing and recovery, I would say. And he still can't be intimate sexual with me. And I'm like, intimate is completely different. And I believe he can't be intimate. And he's choosing not to, uh, the sexual, but they're completely different. Being intimate is being vulnerable. Being intimate is being close. Communication. The, nothing engaged. about sex. So sex addicts but, prove but all the time that sex, sex is a is form not, of intimacy. Can be, yes. Right. But sex addicts but, have sex all the time and it's not intimate. That's what I hear. Yeah. <laughs> 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.